Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mosavarian, and I'm here today to discuss clinical trials, how and why you should be involved, and what results could mean for you with board-certified dermatologist Dr. Benjamin East, who also holds a doctorate in immunology. Dr. East is the owner and lead clinical investigator at Oregon Medical Research Center in Portland, Oregon, where he has conducted over 100 clinical trials for various dermatologic treatments and devices. He has a clinical practice at Broadway Medical Clinic, where he offers a wide range of medical and surgical procedures. Dr. East began his work in clinical research as a lead investigator at Oregon Health and Science University with Dr. Andrew Falbell at the Center of Excellence in Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis eventually leaving to join the Oregon Medical Research Center. In addition to his clinical practice and research activities, Dr. East is a clinical associate professor at OHSU. Welcome, Dr. East, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. So I want to start us off with what started your path in clinical research, and specifically for psoriatic disease? Well, thanks for having me, Shiva. Pleasure to talk with you today. I started out thinking I was going to do basic science research. I graduated with a degree in immunology and finished up medical school and went into dermatology residency and through that realized, thought I might have a larger impact on actual patients if I were doing more clinical research. So the basic science research is fun and exciting and that's what brings you into the the clinical arena. But as you know, most of the the basic research is done in petri dishes and on animal models and such. I decided I would have a bigger impact potentially in my lifetime if I could translate the discoveries that scientists make around disease and then actually use the medications in clinical patients. And then hopefully through a clinical trial, get that into into the real world and into tens of thousands of patients around the world, you know, such as psoriasis patients. So that's how I got in there. When I came out of residency, it was right when the earliest biologics for psoriasis were being developed. So if you think back to Enbrel and, and Humira or Adalimumab and Etanercept. And my background in immunology tied well into the what was arguably and still is probably the best understood inflammatory pathway in a skin disease, and that's psoriasis. So we knew the immunology behind psoriasis and the medicines were now going to target that. And so I think it was kind of a perfect, perfect storm for me. And I said, you know what, I think I can uh, I could understand uh, how to translate this into real patients. And so I started doing uh, psoriasis research and clinical trials and practice uh, when I was faculty at Oregon Health and Science University. Thank you so much for sharing. And we're certainly so glad you chose to be involved with psoriasis clinical trials. So Dr. East, what would you say is the overall reason for conducting a clinical trial? If you think back to the 1800s, the early 1900s, and you probably recall the term snake oil salesman, if you don't do a clinical trial, you can have someone out there hawking any type of medicine saying that it's going to be beneficial. And as we know, you can end up harming people or finding out that indeed this doesn't work like you expected it to. 
So the purpose of a clinical trial is to show that, A, a new potential medication is safe in patients and actually prove it works. And so that's the reason why you do a, a clinical study is to try and prove in a scientific fashion that something is going to be beneficial and safe for, for patient populations. So it adds patient protections. Some clinical trials are now comparing established therapies or the gold standard therapy that's out there with something new. And so that, as a practicing dermatologist, that's helpful because if I have five choices, I'd like to know if there are differences between the choices. So it can guide clinicians and their ability to prescribe these medications. Again, if you have a gold standard, you want to compare that to doing nothing. So that's what a placebo-controlled trial lets you do. And that's important as well because you want to show that there's moderate or maximal benefit over doing nothing, such as if you prescribed a placebo. So it really is tying science into patient safety and efficacy of medications. And that's the reason clinical trials are conducted and it's such a good thing for patients. And what's the difference between clinical trials and pragmatic clinical trials, which is a relatively new direction in dermatology? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't learn about pragmatic clinical trials until recently. So if you think about a scientific experiment, what you're trying to do is remove all variables and just study how X gets you to Y. And to do that, you can do a very placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized clinical study and what we're trying to do that in that situation is take a patient, try to remove all variables we can and say, what actually happens if we give this medication? So to do that, it's expensive. It's a long process. And it's been argued that doesn't naturally reflect the real world experience of patients. So for instance, in a clinical trial, there's a lot of requirements that you must meet in order to qualify for the study. So you have your, your psoriasis, say, for a certain period of time, and it has to be a certain amount of the body. And you may have had to try certain medications before or not tried certain medications before. And you, you may have to have relatively perfect lab values. And we know in the real world that patients don't often fit all those parameters. And so if I'm trying to prescribe a new medication, I have the, the results of a clinical trial that tell me this looks really good and safe, but my patient actually has inflammation of the liver, say. Well, in the clinical trial, the patients with inflamed livers were left out. So it's hard to potentially translate it into the real world. Another big question in dermatology is we have a lot of medicines, but if you've had a recent cancer and we're concerned about would the medicine make you sicker or make your cancer worse or make the cancer come back, well, those patients are excluded from clinical trials usually as well. But in the real world, people get cancer and we want to still be able to treat their psoriasis despite this other uh, issue going on. So it can be challenging to say, how do you apply the results of that controlled clinical trial into real practice? So pragmatic approach is it's, it's trying to do what it says. It's supposed to be practical. A pragmatic clinical trial is trying to use real-world patients in real-world settings and show results. So this means you can do a clinical trial that's pragmatic at routine dermatology clinics and on routine patients who come in with psoriasis. There's a good example that Joel Gelfin's doing around phototherapy use. And my understanding of that trial is if you're coming into your dermatologist and they think you're a good candidate to treat your psoriasis with phototherapy, you can go to the trial. That's all that matters is your willingness to do it. You've been deemed a candidate for phototherapy and you're going to get it. And so then we can look at the real world with lots of different parameters. Does phototherapy work for psoriasis? That type of question. So hopefully pragmatic approaches will allow real world settings there. They can take place without these dedicated trial centers and take place in just the regular clinics around the world. That's sort of the difference between a, a traditional clinical trial and what we're going to see more of, which are pragmatic approaches. 
So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, requires clinical trials to assess potential medical treatments or devices undergo rigorous testing for safety and efficacy before being made available for use by patients. There are different stages of clinical research that need to occur. What generally occurs in the first two steps, or phase one and phase two studies? What's the purpose, and what are some key differences between these two phases? Yeah, a clinical trial, as you're implying, takes place in patients. So there's preclinical trials, which are all the scientific trials done before you get into patients. So there's a stepwise progression of clinical trials, phase one, two, three, and phase four. Phase one are the earliest, first time the drug is going to be used in a human. So phase one trials tend to have small numbers of patients, maybe 10 patients, 20 patients. They often will take place in healthy individuals who say, again, if you're talking about psoriasis, don't have psoriasis, but they're healthy volunteers. And then it moves into smaller numbers of patients that actually have psoriasis. The first phase is predominantly looking at safety of a new medication. So the manufacturer of the drug has shown they think it's going to work and it's going to be safe in models and animals in vitro systems. And now they want to see if they can replicate that in humans. You'll get early ideas about the safety predominantly of a new drug. If it looks like it's going to be tolerated well and there aren't strong safety signals or concerns, then you move to a phase two study. The phase two study now begins to look at the efficacy of the drug, and I often describe those as usually the dosing studies. So at at the phase two point, you're going to have larger numbers of patients, maybe in the hundred, say tens to hundreds of patients, and you're going to look at, say, five different doses of your medication, and you're going to say, what's the optimal dose? And sometimes it'll be, how is it delivered? Can we give this drug by mouth or do we have to give it by injection? So there's a continuation of the phase one. You're also now looking at safety further because you want to say, are there safety issues with these different doses? So that's the first two phases. Again, safety predominantly in small numbers in a phase one study. Phase two study at larger numbers of patients, all with the disease under study, so psoriasis, say, and looking at the beginnings of efficacy and safety. And I want to touch on phase three studies. How many initial treatments move to this phase? And what's the purpose for a phase three clinical trial? How many participants are required for these trials? The first phase, a lot of medications usually move past phase one into phase two. Phase two to phase three is the largest drop-off point for medications. So if you make it out of a phase two trial into a phase three, that's a good sign. I think the numbers show roughly 10 to 30% of medications make it into phase three. So phase three becomes your final push to show that the drug actually works and is safe. And after a phase three study, you can go to the FDA or the other regulatory agency around the world and say, here's my data. I want to try and get this approved. So the phase three trials, again, in psoriasis, usually you're talking several hundreds of patients in those trials, 500 to 1,000, say. In the FDA's mind, you have to do two different phase three trials that are actually identical, but in different populations and at different locations to show that you can replicate your results. So basically, this is the introduction of where you're now going to use double-blind procedures. You're usually going to have a placebo to compare your drug against the placebo, or sometimes your drug against the gold standard that's out there. Larger numbers of patients, you know the dose you want to go with, and you're going to prove now that your drug works and continues to be safe. So if a new indication is being sought by a medication, such as for use in children or general psoriasis, or for something beyond what it was initially approved for, does that mean clinical trials need to occur again? Usually, yeah. So that's phase four trials predominantly. 
if you have a medication that's approved by the FDA, say it's gone through phase one, two, and three, if you want to change the population, say you want to treat children now instead of adults, you have to go and do another trial. That's often a phase four population. So that usually means the drug's approved for something and you're going to extend what it's approved for. You can also try and change what it's used for. So again, we know some of our psoriasis biologics are also approved to treat inflammatory bowel disease. Sometimes the drug can make it to the market first for psoriasis. Some of the companies says, well, it may also work for IBD. They're going to have to do a separate study there to show it's going to work in that population. So you can continue to do further evaluations to extend what that, what that medication is going to be used for. And it can be small things too. There was a recent phase four study that was done using one of the new topical creams for psoriasis. And it was approved for plaque psoriasis in the body. And the company wanted to say, well, is it tolerated and safe just in the folds of the skin for intertriginous or you know, inverse psoriasis? And so they did post-marketing phase four trial looking at its use. And it doesn't have to be as, as strict or uh, rigorous necessarily. So that trial, for instance, there was no placebo. Everybody simply got the cream and they wanted to see how it would be tolerated and how it would work in the inverse areas of the skin. And how many potential treatments actually make it through this approval process? You mentioned something like 10 to 30% earlier. Yeah, so the 10 to 30%, I think, is the number usually quoted around moving from phase two to phase three. Once you get through a phase three, the medications that make it through there, it's around 30 to 60%. I think I've seen figures as high as 90% at times. But again, that could be as low as 30%. So it's a very rigorous process throughout to make sure we're not, you know, again, putting medications on the market that aren't safe and effective. Yeah, and that explains why this is such an expensive process. It certainly does. It's a time-consuming, takes years for a medication to go through these processes, and it's a lot of, yeah, a lot of time and expense. And Dr. East, would you say that head-to-head comparisons within treatment classes are occurring more frequently in clinical trials, like, say, an IL-23 versus an IL-23 or an IL-23 compared to a TNF inhibitor? In general, yes, we're seeing more and more studies comparing two products. And I think that's been a push from physicians, clinicians, from patients, from the FDA and the regulatory agencies, because again, we want to get products that actually improve the lives of patients and they're not just a copycat of a medicine that's already out there. So we're starting to see these comparisons. It's a little tricky because within a class is still something, it's a not as often performed. It, it is happening across class, like you're saying, that certainly is it's happening more often. So looking at an IL-23 biologic versus an IL-17 biologic, doing trials now with an IL-23 biologic against an oral medication, that type of thing. There are the early signs now of some pharmaceuticals saying, yes, we have an IL-17 class of biologic and we're going to go against another IL-17 class of biologic. And ultimately, you get different information from those different studies. I think between the the same class of medication, that's again helpful because it may say there really are differences and one of these may be more appropriate for a certain population of patients with psoriasis than another. And likewise, if you're looking across the classes, that's very helpful. When I sit down with a patient in front of me, we have to choose what we're going to do among numerous great options now. It's nice to have those comparisons. And what would you say is the biggest challenge facing clinical trials today? Is it difficult to recruit a diverse population? Certainly. There are numerous challenges. I think overall, it's becoming more complex. There are many more data points that are asked of clinical trial locations to collect. So that means patients doing clinical trials have to do more within the study. 
locations like ours where we're actually performing the study, we have more data to collect. It's a complex process. It's been slower because of this. There's great medication out there for some conditions. So in psoriasis, for instance, we have an explosion of good medication now. So recruiting patients in, that can be more challenging these days than it was when we didn't have as many options. I think those are some of the challenges. Diversity, it's still a challenge. So in medicine in general, we know that many of the decisions and the medications that have been approved over decades now have predominantly been performed in majority populations, so Caucasians in the U.S. And we know that there are differences in how different ethnicities and racial backgrounds influence tolerability or effectiveness of medications. The actual condition you're treating may vary across those different backgrounds. And so in the past, if you had a clinical study that's all Caucasian, you may not be able to translate those results well to other patient populations. So there's a big push to try and get more diverse populations, not only into helpful therapeutic relationships with providers, but also into clinical trials. So yes, and historically, we've done a disservice to minority populations in trials. There are many notorious examples of minority groups that were exploited. And so changing the mindset and being cognizant of some of those past indiscretions, that's an important thing to overcome. So we try and do that when we're sitting down and talking about how we're going to try and recruit and how we're going to do outreach to prove the diversity of our trial participants. So say someone has an interest in joining a clinical trial, what do they need to do? Good question. The first thing you have to do if you want to join a clinical trial is find a clinical trial. So you have to locate a trial that you can do in various ways. The most comprehensive way, I think, is you can go to clinicaltrials.gov.gov and any FDA regulated trial in the U.S. has to be listed on there. So you can actually go there and put in what you're interested in, type in psoriasis and do a search for all the trials that are happening looking at helping patients with psoriasis, for instance. You can go to places like the NPF. The NPF has a a list of of ongoing clinical trials for psoriasis. We do a lot of advertisements. You can drive around the city and they see billboards or postings for clinical trials. We do radio ads and online ads as well. If you just type in a clinical trial and what you're interested in, in your search engine, will usually pop up with different sources of information there as well. And you should be able to ask your physician too. So most providers have somewhat of a handle on what local trials are going on. So we reach out to community dermatologists in our area to let them know what we have available. So you have to find a trial. When you come in and you first start, the very first thing you do is you go through the informed consent process. And to me, this is the most important part of the trial because that's where I lay out all the pros and cons of doing this, exactly what's going to happen throughout the study, what you're going to need to do? Are you going to need to give us blood? Are you going to need to do punch biopsies? Do you have to keep a diary of your feelings about your psoriasis or other disease? We talk about the risks and benefits of the medication, what's known or not known. So you talk about, is it going to work or not for you? How are you helping everyone with disease at the time commitment? All those things. So there's a very lengthy process up front to make sure you're completely informed and you are voluntarily consenting to go into the clinical trial. There are a couple important visits. The very first visit you do after you join and you've signed your consent form is called a screening visit. That's where you take a full medical history. You start answering questions about your psoriasis, say. You go through all the criteria you need to qualify, what's called the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So again, I alluded to that earlier. You have to meet certain characteristics and not have certain other characteristics to qualify. 
you usually get your starting blood work to make sure you're safe enough to do it. Then you go away and you come back for your second visit, which is the baseline. The baseline is when you actually start the new medication, the trial medication. And then you go throughout the various study visits until the end of the study happens. And then there's usually one more visit at the very end called a safety follow-up where you've now stopped the medicine and we see you back to make sure things are still okay and there haven't been any changes in your health. And then you're completely through the process and we talk about what's next. Thank you so much for walking us through this process. I'm sure it's going to be very helpful for any listeners who might be interested in participating in a clinical trial. So are there any benefits to participants for being involved in a clinical trial? Certainly. Hopefully your primary benefit may be that you're going to help everybody out there around the world with your same illness. So again, the, the way we get medicines approved and helpful for everybody around the world is to participate. I'm always amazed when people sign up to do this because it does take a bit of an altruistic approach. You have to say, I'm willing to give my extra time and effort because it takes a lot more time and effort to go through a clinical trial than it does to just go to the physician's office and get a prescription medication. So hopefully you're going to help everybody out there. It should benefit yourself, potentially, depending on what the trial is and how it's designed. So again, there are differences. If it's a phase one trial, you may have less benefit because it's going to be a shorter study. You may be on a dose that doesn't work because, again, you're primarily looking at safety. That may be a different calculation. If you join a phase three trial and a phase three trial, again, we think the medicine's probably going to work and has a good safety record so far. So you may get more benefit personally. But certainly, you can sign up for something that's potentially going to help you through the trial. It may give you access, again, to something that's new and exciting. Perhaps you run out of current treatment options, and this may be a way to get something that's going to help because everything else has failed or has stopped working. So there's potential benefit there. You don't have to worry about insurance. So most trials, you get paid a small stipend for each of the visits you attend to promote participation. So you don't have to have insurance or you could be underinsured and still participate in a clinical study. There are a lot of potential benefits and it's another potential option, I like to say, for patients seeking care. So one of the frustrations about being part of a clinical trial is a participant may be on a medication that works perfectly and then they need to find something else once the clinical trial ends. Do you have any suggestions as to what someone can do in this circumstance? Yeah, that is a frustration and a very real one. So we always have a very upfront discussion in the beginning about what's going to happen at the end of the study. And you're right. So sometimes it could be the best medicine you've been on and the study ends and it may still be months or years before that drug gets onto the market. Sometimes very good medications actually never make it to the market, even though they worked in the trial for other reasons too. So I think it's important to have a discussion with your investigator when you first start about what will happen at the end. It does vary. So there are certain trials I can say, this is going to be available by the time you're done, and this gives you maybe a chance to preview it. We research alternatives. You can do that as well. So you can certainly say, hey, I'm going to do a study of a medication in a certain class, knowing that there are other medications in this class that are already approved. And if I do well, well, maybe I'll have the option of switching to something that's similar, but that's already approved. So there are alternatives you can look into that way. Some trials are actually have longer-term extensions phases, so you may have the opportunity to sign up for something that extends your participation, and you can keep getting the medicine in the trial until it's actually available on the market. And then you can finish the trial and go back and work through your insurance options to try and get that medicine out of this approved. You can also sign up for another trial. We have a lot of patients who enjoy doing a clinical study and find benefit, and the return rate can be high. So we have patients that say, hey, I'm doing great. When my psoriasis comes back, I'm going to call up and, and do another trial. So 
that's another way to go. Yeah, I mean, those are all really great options. So I want to turn to some current clinical trials. What are some of the more interesting clinical trials being done today? Boy, there are a lot of interesting trials. So I think it's a really exciting time because we're able to, I think, apply advances in science into humans quicker and better. The science has just advanced so much that it's become exciting. So for instance, last week I was listening to a report about using what's called small interfering RNA for treating high blood pressure. And if anyone knows about high blood pressure, many patients have to take three or four high blood pressure medications. It's a pain because you, you're trying to remember all these medications to take. Well, this this new treatment in a clinical trial showed control of high blood pressure with an injection, a sub-Q injection given once every six months. So imagine having to maybe throw away all your pills and do one injection every six months and keep your blood pressure under control. So that sounded exciting. They're using uh, studies using innocuous viruses, so viruses that don't hurt us, but that could insert genes. And one is being used for hemophiliacs. So hemophilia, there's a mutation in one of the genes and it makes you bleed easily. And you can replace that with a functioning gene. So there's a clinical trial of that going on. If everyone's familiar with the mRNA vaccines that have been used for COVID infection and, and that rapid development program and success there, they're using similar technology now to go after cancer. Uh, so there may be actually quote-unquote vaccine approaches to deal with cancers. Those are some. And are you able to share some of the clinical trials that you're currently involved in? Sure, yeah. So Oregon Medical Research, we perform many trials in dermatology indications. We've been doing that for about 25 or so years. We like to try and treat anything related to the skin. So for psoriasis, we have a couple trials that are using an oral, what's hopefully an oral equivalent of one of the IL-23 biologic shots. So it's an encapsulated small portion of the larger molecule. It's called a peptide, a protein peptide, and it's in a pill. So you potentially can take a pill instead of getting one of the biologic shots, and hopefully that'll prove as effective and safe. One of those head-to-head comparisons we were talking about in a kind of a phase four fashion that's using, again, one of the biologic IL-23 blockers against the approved TIC2 blocker. So the new oral medication that was approved a while back. There's a cross-class comparison between an injectable and an oral drug. We're treating other immune-driven conditions called hidradenitis superativa, alopecia areata, which is an autoimmune form of hair loss, vitiligo, where you lose pigmentation on the skin from an immune attack. Those are using oral medications, what are called JAK inhibitors. A lot of success with those in dermatologic conditions. We're looking at a new injectable biologic for chronic hives. Uh, That's also an undertreated area and a miserable condition for patients to deal with chronic hives. And we've expressed interest and hopefully we'll get to do trials soon using a vaccine for acne. So this is a vaccination approach that goes after the bacteria on the skin we know that can cause uh, moderate to severe acne in teens and adults. So another very exciting potential trial. Wow. I mean, these all sound so exciting. Yeah. Dr. East, thank you so much for sharing. The information you provided about clinical trials has been really fascinating. We're almost at time here, but before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, do you have any closing comments you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure to talk. I think in general, my closing comment about trials, again, I think it can be participating and conducting them, they can be challenging, complicated, but it's highly rewarding. Again, not only personally for doing as a patient or as an investigator for doing this, but I think in general, the ability to get a a new treatment option, not only for yourself, but for tens, thousands of patients potentially around the world, to me, that's 
most exciting part about participating in a clinical trial. And so I really, really like to shout out to the patients who have been willing to do that and, and done that with us over the years, because this is a way to truly make the world a better place. Yeah, it's definitely so true. So, thanks. Thank you, Dr. East, for your comments and interesting information you provided today. The promise of potential treatments for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis offered through clinical trials is so amazing. We want to thank you for being part of such efforts and the promise of better treatments being available in the future. For anyone who's interested in finding a clinical trial near you, subscribe to receive the latest news, including notifications for recruitment for clinical trials through my studies at psoriasis.org forward slash subscribe. Choose what information you'd like to receive there. For more information about treatment options, contact our patient navigation center at 800-723-9166 or email education at psoriasis.org. And finally, this episode is provided with support from Bristol Myers Squibb. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Ghana, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.